you are listening to Impact Hustlers, and I am your host, Michael Schaffrat. I have made it my mission to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs to solve some of the world's biggest social and environmental problems. And for this reason, I am speaking to some of the best entrepreneurs out there who are solving problems such as food waste, climate change, poverty, and homelessness. My goal is that Impact Hustlers will inspire you either by starting an impact business yourself, by joining the team of one, or by taking a small step, whatever that may be, towards being part of the solution to the world's biggest problems. Thanks very much, Lauren, for joining me on Impact Hustlers today. It's a real honor uh, to talk to you. Uh, we're both involved in the backed community as uh, Venture Scouts. Uh, but I think this is the first proper opportunity for us to have a real chat about the work you do. And uh, I'm really curious to learn more uh, today and uh, share that with everyone. Um, yeah. You actually started your so welcome first of all. Thank you, thank you. It's super good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for joining. So you started your career as a product designer, um, and over time you shifted towards service design, and now you're actually uh, on this whole new journey around uh, empowering women uh, and uh, boosting confidence in women. Um, tell us about your career journey uh, from starting as a product designer um, to shifting your career towards, uh, let's say, social innovation and uh, empowering women. Of course. Thank you. So, yeah, I went off to art school uh, on a mission to be the next Steve Jobs to study product design engineering. So I decided I would build a product that would make me very rich and change lots of lives. And then really quickly into my studies, I was introduced to the discipline of service design, you know, which is now we talk about design thinking, customer experience design. Uh, you know, back then it was a very emergent, unknown field. And I very quickly became, you know, obsessed and really excited about the idea of crafting beautiful, useful, human-centered experiences the same way I'd been taught to craft lampshades and trash cans and, you know, the physical products that exist in the world. And, you know, service design applies to any service you can think of. And that's everything from buying a cup of coffee, booking a holiday, trying to get insurance, to visiting your GP and everything in between. And when I left art school, and kind of looked up and out into the world. There were no service design jobs in Scotland. They were all in London. And I wanted to stay in Scotland. I wanted to use service design and my creativity to solve the problems that I could see around me in my neighbourhood, in my city and in my country. So I co-founded uh, Scotland's first service design for social change agency, called Snook, which my mum came up with the name, uh, which uh, is a is a Scots word for, you know, the feeling of being super cosy, you know, like fresh bed sheets at a fire type of thing. My gran would say, oh, this is the Snooks. So I built Snook from the ground up, one paying customer, then another paying customer. I led that with my co-founder for seven years we were very focused in the public sector so applying service design 
to government services, education, health. And, you know, we used to stand on stages and talk about designers belong in government. And people would look at me like I had landed from Mars, which, of course, you know, design is very commonplace now in government and our National Health Service and lots of public institutions. So that was my that was my first kind of entrepreneur entrepreneurial journey if you like and I think one that was started from a place of complete naivety I had no idea what I was signing up for I you know it was my first job really I'd never been employed before before that um then I spent a year in education at Hyper Island which was one of the things that led to me falling in love with Sweden which is where I moved to Mm -hmm. six months ago Um, and that was super fun designed one of the world's first MA programs in digital experience design and then you know the call of London that was in Manchester and the call of London just became stronger and stronger and I joined a team called Good Lab which was a super interesting brief where the founders had got investment from 11 of the top charities in the UK and our mission was to build one business that would bring in 250 million pounds of profit every single year for the entire charity sector so it was Mm. bonkers and big so I jumped in there was like a team of five or six of us and our job was essentially to prototype businesses and ship a new business idea every three months building on like what is the value proposition that this unique collection of charities brings. And I guess that was when my attention started to shift away from the design of the product and the service and the business to culture and leadership. Because the biggest challenge we could see at Good Lab was actually not about the businesses. It was about the culture clash, different ways of working and being uh, and operating that we could see across the charitable sector. And that was what led to me building my business after Good Lab, which was Nobel. And that was all about organisational change, culture design, helping teams design their, how they work together, um, which led to me then realising that leadership development is a very out-of-date field so I spent the last 15 months building a startup building a leadership development app which I actually just left a couple of weeks ago um, to now focus on upfront and upfront is something that started around good lab time 2016 as a kind of guerrilla campaign to make stages more accessible and over the last five years I've built it up as a business on the side and it's now my full-time focus and we are on a super exciting mission with a global community and yeah that's where I'm at now amazing wow uh that's such an inspiring journey especially kind of really the breadth of uh experiences you had across your career the different missions and areas you've worked on uh let's zoom in on upfront that's what we're here to talk about and your mission with upfront um as far as I understand, you literally started with realizing, okay, I'm being invited to speak on all these stages, um, but I'm most very often the only woman. Uh, when I speak to women, they say, mm, I don't really feel like I should be mm-hmm. applying to these things. I don't really have the confidence to be on stage. 
And you thought about, okay, let's find a way to at least put women on stage, even if they're not speaking, just basically make some space for women or kind of any sort of diverse um, set of people to be on stage with you when you were speaking, right? Is that how Upfront started and how did it evolve from there? Yeah, that's a, a beautiful summary, you know, and one that started again from a place of complete naivety and me thinking, why why is this, I go to design conferences, it's the same five white dudes telling the same five stories on repeat, you know, venture capital scene is the same. I discover every sector is the same, um, you know, a huge overrepresentation of white middle class men and, you know, not enough diversity when it comes to race, gender, class, economic background, diversity of thought. And, you know, my design training really taught me how to, you know, listen in these conversations I was having with people of all genders about, okay, tell me why you don't talk on a stage. And the fun part about what led to all that research was I put a post-it note in the toilets at a conference to say, do you want to be on stage one day? And I was absolutely inundated with people who wanted to talk to me. So that was my like discovery phase. And I that was my kind of journey of realising, okay, this is intersectional. This is complex. It's societal. It's got a lot to do with racism, sexism, age, ageism. But I kept hearing this insight of, you know, the idea of standing up on a big raised stage in front of a big audience, no fucking way. Too scary, too big. It's just not something I'm prepared to do. And when you think about it, you know, in our professional lives, when we want to do a new thing, you go on a course or you buy a book or you shadow somebody. You know, there's usually a dip your toe in the water phase before you're expected to show up as as the full expert or as the full professional whereas with public speaking that phase doesn't exist it's like one day you're in the audience the next day you're up there and the spotlight's on your face and you have to be charming and articulate so I thought how can we design a way to dip your toe in the water for people who and this is not people who are like oh one day I might want to do a TED talk this is people who are like don't ask me to introduce myself because I don't want to do that in front of people. You know, this is people who are very not used to and very uncomfortable with being in the spotlight, with eyes on them, with the idea of being on a stage. And my thesis was this. What if we get every keynote speaker in the world to put a big giant red sofa on stage with them so that people with stage fright can just chill out and be on the stage let their heart rate go back to normal, remember how to breathe and realise it's not that scary. You're safe on a stage. And the prototypes, what the prototypes showed me, because I tried it out at different conferences, there were like 50, 60, sometimes 100 people applying for a seat on like a three, four seater couch. So the demand was huge. People in the audience were really struck by, you know, this is forcing them to challenge themselves on, why is it strange for me to see three black women on a stage? Why is it strange for me to see two women over the age of 55 on a stage? And for the organisers, you know, the ones that are really listening and good at their jobs, they know this is a massive problem, but they're not quite sure what to do about it. And Upfront was giving them something to do about it. So, you know, I tidied it up into a process 
And just, you know, through my own social networks, asked other keynote speakers to take part. And we ended up, we had over 500 people sit on the couch at conferences all over the world. We gathered data from them before and after, and we had data that it worked. You're 30% more likely to talk at an event yourself one day. You feel 90% more confident, like lots and lots of brilliant stuff. But, of you know, this, there was no business model. There was no strategy. It was just this, like, how do we almost like more of a kind of campaign and then the people on the couch were like okay what happens now like do you have a book I can buy or a podcast or a program and I was like no (laughs) and that and that was where the next phase uh that was where the next phase began yeah yeah. Are there some stories of those people that were uh, joined you on the couch that now uh, are renowned public speakers or maybe at least uh, kind of really uh, overcame the fear of public speaking? Uh, any people that like kind of are out there right now that that were yeah, on yeah. stage in those days? 100%, honestly. And I'm not, I'm really not exaggerating when I say I get so many messages that I can't keep up of people who have either been on the couch. We used to do off, you know, we used to do in-person workshops for businesses and for individuals as well. Now we run our online programs. I get so many messages every week of people saying, because of Upfront, I, you know, I did a talk myself. Uh, I know there's somebody, a couple of people who had decided they were not going to speak at their wedding who then did give a speech at their wedding because of the their upfront experience. People who have got promotions, earning more money, starting their own businesses, speaking up and out against prejudice, saying no to things that they would normally have said yes to. I mean, essentially, it's the skill, you know, yes, it's public speaking, but it's also the skill of advocating for yourself, being able to articulate your worth, your skill set, your talents in a way that makes people listen and take you seriously, which, of course, is harder depending on who you are. You know, that's much harder for a black or brown woman than it is for a white woman. You know, women are not an, a homogenous group. We are as unequal as women and men are as a group. So... You know, that's really, yeah, yeah that I'm really incredibly proud of of the impact. And, you know, the, one of my jobs to be done at the moment is to think about how I can put some more systems in place to gather that data and turn those stories into, yeah. you know, metrics so that when I come back on this podcast in a year's time, I can say, well, yes, there's uh, 1,402 people said this, uh, but I don't quite have those numbers yet. Yeah, but we'll get there. And we'll talk about what you do with the wider upfront community. But I'll, I'll stick to the beginnings a little bit longer because mm. I think it's a nice example as well to show some of the issues behind this. Obviously, we've just talked about the issue of women sometimes not having enough confidence to speak or to kind of put themselves out there. Um, but obviously that's only one side of the coin in terms of what women on an individual level can do to put themselves out there. There's also the societal and structural problem. Mm-hmm. There's the problem maybe of the conference organizers, even mm-hmm. if there's plenty of great women out there that are great public speakers that are up for it that are volunteering for it that are signing up for it they yeah. still don't ha- they're still not on stage right 
So how do you weigh these two issues, right? From like one-sided view, just saying, oh, it's just a women's issue. Like women need to just boost their confidence and everything yes. will be fixed, which is obviously, it. I'm just trying to make it clear versus it's all a structural issue. Um, basically, we just need to change society and then <laughs> everything will be fine. Um, but it's not an issue that women have. Like, do you think it's both and how can kind of, how can we improve on both, I guess, in some way? Yes, and this is my favorite question because nothing pisses me off more than the narrative of women need to fix themselves. And the reason why Upfront is different and special and powerful is because it does not do what the majority of courses and literature and products around confidence do, which is we do not place the emphasis on the woman having to fix herself because when you do that, you're erasing very complex systems and you're casting the woman as the maker of her own fate. And, you know, where we come from is a stance of we want to change confidence, not women. And we want to educate women as to why things are the way they are Why are women crippled by low confidence in a way that men are not? Now, don't get me wrong. I also get emails from a weekly, on a weekly basis from men who want to join up front and from women who have had the experience and say, my brother needs this, my husband needs this, my, my next door neighbor needs this. You know, the patriarchal, very American, masculine, white version of confidence is also harmful for men. It just so happens that I've chosen to focus on serving the, you know, serving women in this in this space, and you know how we how we approach it is all of our content and the work we do is based upon the three truths. So one, your low confidence is a consequence of the patriarchy. You are a result of your environment, and that uh, that truth for many women who go through the bonds is completely transformative. It's the first time in their life that they have realized, understood and accepted the problem does not lie with me. And the reason that that is so powerful is because our world is full of multi-billion dollar industries that exist and thrive off of women believing that the problem is them. So that's why that's like a really significant thing. The second thing is not all women experience oppression in the same way as we kind of talked about before. So there's a strong emphasis on intersectionality, the role of race and class and economic status and how all of these things combine to affect how a woman is perceived by the people around her. And then the third thing is about responsibility and power and privilege. Because if I am going to teach and train millions of women to be upfront and to build this muscle of confidence in a way that feels good for them, I only want to do that with the knowledge that they are going into that with a very clear objective of I must bring other women with me. I must amplify women who have less privileges than me. 
and I must do all of this work in a way that is building ladders around myself. So there's very much a focus on the collective power, the collective power of community and networks to try and make, as we, as I mentioned earlier, to try and make uh, there be more equality within women ourselves, you know, that's gay women, trans women, poor women. Uh, you know, I think a lot of the conversations around supporting and amplifying women are focused on white middle to upper class women. And that is very dangerous um, and is not going to achieve the quality objectives, you know, that we would all love to see for our children and for the future of the world. Mm. That's a really good point. I actually recorded a podcast a while ago with Gary Stewart, who used to be my boss at Wira and is now running a company called Founder Tribes, uh, helping mm -hmm. uh, black founders mainly um, uh, raise funding. And um, we, we spoke a little bit about that as well, that sometimes even the word diversity is interpreted in a very one-dimensional way uh, mm -hmm. in, in many spaces, right? Like, uh, for example, if a previously uh, organization that was previously pretty much white male becomes white male and female, that's already kind of diverse for, mm -hmm. for, many, mm -hmm. for many organizations, right? And that's, I think, the problem that that's not the definition of diversity um, if, yeah. if you only stick to that. So it's a really good point. Uh, that you're making there. I, I guess from there, I'd love to move um, uh, towards um, kind of the role of men um, specifically and maybe focusing on the role of men in upfront. I don't know if there's any role of men in upfront that you think about, but also on more of a societal level or uh, on the level of uh, men opening doors or what what's kind of advice that you would share with uh, men in power or men in uh, positions that can actually enable women and uh, um, um, uh, women to access um, what maybe was previously restricted? Yes. And thank you for asking that question. I want every single man listening to go and ask the women in their team the same question. And so from an upfront perspective, there's two things. One is often the women who want to join the bond are seeking permission or funding from a male leader, boss. And they often can find that conversation quite difficult because the man on the other side of the conversation is really struggling to empathise with, like, what is this problem that you're asking me to pay you know, a thousand dollars to fix or whatever it might be. So there's something about um, being really open to when women in your team and your organization come to you with a request for a learning opportunity that you believe them and you listen to them, that that need is real and you go out of your way to, to fund and pay for the experience that they're asking you to pay for. I think the second thing about, you know, just men in general and their role in this, it's it's huge because, as we've said, you know, confidence is a result of our environment. And, you know, women are not born feeling less than. As they grow up, they are taught to feel less than. And that looks different depending on where you live in the world, your culture, lots of different things. But there are very key patterns that repeat themselves around, for example, being interrupted 
at work, being spoken over the top of, um, being being dismissed for having ideas or opinions that a male counterpart would not be dismissed for, right through to, you know, bigger things that we know women are paid less than men when both do the same job. So I think for the men listening, it's the, okay, this starts at home. It starts in the pub with my friends, on Zoom with my teammates. I am going to call out sexism and the dismissal of women when I hear it. I am going to role model paying women, amplifying women. You know, this is particularly important around race. It's like being the person to say, you know, we don't talk like that here. We don't, we don't talk about women like that. We don't say those things here when there's an opportunity. How might we pay a black woman to be our keynote speaker? How might we find five black women to be our next podcast guest? And being being the voice of that asks the question, like who is not in this room, and why is that, and what can we do about it? Um, and then the last one is to tell people what you earn, especially women and people of color, because there is an intense uh, pay gap. There's a race pay gap. There's a wealth pay gap between genders and. There's lots of evidence that shows that when a man reveals what he earns, it's uh, it's incredibly powerful for a woman to have that information so that she can then negotiate from a really sound place of, you know, I know that my counterpart is getting paid sometimes 10, 20, 30,000 pounds more than me so she can go into that negotiation feeling much more confident and it's you know it's not about anybody getting thrown under the bus or getting into trouble you know there's ways that you can do that that is sensitive to the context and I know that employers go out of their way and go at great lengths to prevent their employees from having those conversations there is a reason that they do that and the reason that they do that is to keep you know maintain the status quo and right now the status quo is only serving an elite few and we know that men benefit from it far more than women um, so those would be my I mean yeah there's a lot I could write a book about this but those would be my three things please do please do <laughs> it's, it's a, a really good one uh, uh, I think um, on 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 that I guess that there is a need for a book like uh, Lean In uh, that Sheryl Sandberg the CEO of Facebook mm. wrote for men <laughs> yeah not to like like basically for men to say what do you need to do to basically to lean out get, get out of the way exactly. yeah lean out almost yeah that, that <laughs> yeah. could be a good idea yeah uh, maybe you can pitch that to somebody or uh, right i now. mean i i think <laughs> i i think there's two books who would really do a brilliant job in this context and mm -hmm. one is uh invisible women which is mm -hmm. a book all about data it's a data-driven book all about how the world is designed with a bias for men in mind and then the second book is laura bates's new book she is the founder of the everyday sexism project and i might get the title wrong but i think it's called why men hate women and mm. you know it's again coming from a data perspective and you know just yesterday i saw a horrific article sharing that the number of searches for how do I hit a woman in a way that nobody would notice has, you know, 
millions and millions of searches. I can't remember the exact number, but and also like 70% increase over COVID. And, you know, I think these types of statistics and stories, you know, it's really easy when people, you know, when, when you and I get together to have these conversations, it's, it's easy to focus on the team meetings and the pitching process and, you know, raising capital, building your business. But we also need to remember that there are whole populations of women who are nowhere near a place where it would be safe for them to build businesses or, you know, apply for funding because they are stuck in situations where their only option is to escape, you know, and we kind of talked about lean in earlier. It's like, this is, that's the problem with narratives like lean in is they're usually ignoring poor women, you know, women who are in situations where, you know, no matter how smart they are, how hard they work, how much they lean in, how much they strategize, how much confidence they have. It wouldn't make any difference because the system is so fundamentally broken. Um, so yeah, it's an important, mm. it's an important part of the conversation. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I'd love to follow up uh, with a question on that. Uh, wh what do you think needs to happen for this issue to not only be tackled for the boardrooms of massive companies, for the Sheryl Sandbergs of the world to be mm -hmm. able to have the positions that they have, but really, like, yeah, most women are not Sheryl Sandberg. They are, uh, you know, like most people are not uh, in those type of positions. And yeah. they may be in much different situations in terms of what they need to do. So what can what can happen across society that will empower women at all stages, uh, all kinds of levels of education, all kinds of uh, wealth um, spectrums? What do you think yeah. can happen to have a broader change happen? Okay, so this is your, if you were Prime Minister, Lauren, what would you do? Question. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Which yeah. you know, I think of it. You know, <laughs> I've thought I've thought about this. So you know, no, but it's it's a really really big question, and you know, far more complex than than you and I can can answer in a podcast. <laughs> but I, so the core. I think there's two there's two core pieces to the answer, and one is education, and one is policy and laws so we need policies and laws to change so that they are policies that are designed f with entire populations in mind uh, I think we only need to look at the headlines around how the UK government has responded to COVID for a really brilliant example of the trauma and devastation that's caused when policies are implemented that ignore pregnant women for example, or that ignore black and brown people, for example. You know, we've seen those two things play out to devastating effects over COVID. And we know that the number of women who were involved in those policies and the generation of those policies was, was you know, practically zero, very minimal. So how do we get more women into, into positions of creating policies, creating laws, uh, Alongside that, how do we get more women to stand for office? How do we get more women to to be elected as government officials so that women are at the tables where these decisions 
are being made. Uh, and that, you know, that would, that would be where I would start and, you know, where those decisions need to start is around infrastructure around childcare and family life. You know, there's no coincidence that I've just moved my family out of the UK to Sweden, a country where policies are built with families and children's, children's, children and mothers and fathers in mind. And I sit on the board of a charity called Pregnant Then Screwed, which is a maternity discrimination charity. And our founder, Julie Brearley, has just written a book, uh, which I recommend everybody buys and reads. And in that book, she outlines, you know, the the crisis that is happening in the UK around childcare and the choices that women are having to make between do I buy nappies or do I buy food? Uh, you know, it's really dire straits. And we see that often for many women who, you know, to go back to the kind of lean in context, Often for many women, the first time they experience discrimination is when they become a parent, whether that's through pregnancy or adoption or whatever that looks like. And, you know, they might work in a startup, they might work in advertising. You know, they have a healthy, they have a disposable income, they're in a healthy income bracket. And it's the first time in their life that they that they experience discrimination and oppression and it, and it can ruin lives and it's devastating. Mm. Um, and that's why the conversation around childcare is so powerful because, you know, I know from my work at Pregnant Then Screwed that for when women have that experience and they go through that trauma, they then get a tiny, tiny insight and glimpse into the oppression that their black and brown peers, for example, have been experiencing for decades upon decades, but often it doesn't manifest itself until the moment you become a parent. Um, I'm going off track of it, but yeah, that's where I would start. Yeah. Elected officials, lawmakers, policymakers, and childcare, family infrastructure. Got it. Amazing. Lauren for <laughs> Prime Minister. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, no, great. Uh, let's go from the really big picture, societal picture again, to kind of the more micro picture mm. uh, with what you're doing up front. We already covered how Upfront started. Uh, you basically opened the stages uh, of the world uh, to, uh, to people um, mm -hmm. that weren't traditionally on them. Um, but what has it evolved into now? I understand there is now a global community of women that are part of Upfront. Uh, I think you call it the Global Bond. And then yeah. you're also running regular bonds and programs for women to build confidence. Tell us more about what you do at the moment with Upfront and uh, yeah, also how, how people can be part of that. Yeah, absolutely. So we have the Global Bond community, which is a network that you join and by joining, you know, you you get access to me, you get access to the rest of the bond. We have four events a month. We have daily, weekly conversations all around the theme of building new muscles of confidence, visibility, power with the context of building ladders around ourselves and embracing and understanding intersectionality. So that's our 
global community and then the individual bonds are the cohort of, of women who go through our six-week program. So our flagship product is a six-week program. All happens online. You've got three hours of pre-recorded material and three hours of live material, which is very high energy, very optimistic. We have women from all over the world join. And I think what's super powerful about it is we are very much not interested in your job title or your professional identity. You know, we show up as individuals and we bring our confidence stories and challenges from our work, our home life, our personal lives. And, you know, people say to me that that combined with the focus on neuroscience, the kind of behaviour change, mindset change is something really spectacular that, um, yeah, that people love so as i said before we've had nearly 500 women move through the bonds from 25 different countries and your audience are in luck because the next bond the fourth bond launches on the 7th of june and we still have places left so do visit the website or get in touch with me however you wish if you're interested in that and you know i'm working with a lot of organizations organizations like Bulb, Babylon, Co-op, Big Lottery Fund, who are onboarding, you know, multiple teams of 10, 20, 30 people to go through the bonds as well. So we also have, you know, a strong B2B um, part of our business too. So the, that's the current focus and kind of what is emerging or coming soon is, you know, I'm looking at creating many bonds for for women with a very specific lived experience and the one that I'm working on at the moment is for women who are neurodivergent mm -hmm. because what I've realized through learning from women who are neurodivergent who've come through the bond is that there is a huge gap in the market for professional guidance focused on career development showing up public speaking owning your power if you are neurodivergent so i've been talking to who knew the world is full of amazing women and this is their job they're neurodivergent themselves and they teach other women how to how to navigate that complexity in a world that's set up you know to not really understand nor embrace what that means um, so that's something that I'm working on at the moment that I'm that I'm excited about. That's amazing, uh, everybody. Uh, we will have the link to uh, the Upfront website in the show notes. I think it's weareupfront.com, uh, yes. and uh, I'll, I'll leave it there for sure for anybody that wants to check it out. Thank you. Um, one question we didn't cover um, that I'd love to cover before we wrap up is um, how you actually evolved uh, upfront from this initiative that didn't really have, let's say, a long-term plan behind it necessarily that you were mm -hmm. like thinking, okay, I'm going to develop all these things into a business, right? Like now recently uh, you jumped back in full-time now mm -hmm. on upfront. So I'd love to think from an entrepreneurial perspective, how, have you evolved it? And maybe some advice for entrepreneurs that are starting out. Is that mm. like a good route to take to first start with something that solves a clear problem, even if you don't have a clear strategy for the future and then develop it as you understand more or how, how are you approaching it now? 
Yeah. So, I mean, my, I'm a designer. So, you know, my, my training, my worldview, my methodology is learn by doing bias towards action. So yes, absolutely. I, I would always preach that that is the way to go. You learn far more by putting a tiny scrap of a half-formed idea into the world than you do sitting behind the desk trying to build an idea in a laptop on your own. And the story is a fun one because when you look back the way it's like, it's very nice and neat and progress, you know, progresses from one stage to the other. But at the time, as I said, the truth is it was always on the side of, either a day job or another venture and I think so we have the couch phase and in that phase I would have conversations with people who sat on the couch and what happened was during those conversations I would hear lots of stories and I would get to really listen to people's stories about where they've come from why they sat on the couch what they want to do next and I kept hearing all these incredible stories, meeting these incredible people and becoming more and more inspired and driven on how can I help them? Gosh, why is this? Why are the same messages of barriers coming up time and time again? And that was when I kind of started Googling like, OK, so if I wanted to go on a course to learn public speaking, to learn how to tell my story, what's out there? And essentially, you've got two buckets of stuff. You've got Tony Robbins, Gary Vee, white, American, extroverted, arrogant, you know, puffed up, let's all do confidence as if we're about to go on a boxing ring. And then you've got um, very academic, quite elite, usually rooted in drama or acting, you know, hmm. learn confidence through movement, your relationship with your body. Now, just me as me, like both of those things are like, no, thank you. So I know that if I feel that, there'll be lots of other people in the world who feel that too. So I put together a one-day workshop. I convinced my boss at the time to let me run it in, in our office at the weekend. I didn't have a baby then. I've got a wee boy now who's three. So my weekends were free um, because I wasn't a parent and, you know, had the privilege of time. Hmm. And put it on Eventbrite sold tickets I think for 30 quid a ticket to see what would happen and every single one sold out had a waiting list they were days that I still remember you know in incredibly emotional powerful in the best of ways and every single session I ran I got smarter on like what is the problem what do these women need what do we need to happen next and essentially I developed, I developed that over time to be a smarter, more sophisticated offer. So then we had one day sessions, two day sessions. We started selling them to businesses. I had a network of brilliant impro improvisation artists and actors who I would bring in to cover bits around, you know, physicality and voice and posture in a non-drama school way. Um, and, you know, drama school is brilliant, but I think when you're somebody who isn't feeling good about how you're showing up in the world, it's, it's not the best approach. So then I really quickly realised I wanted to do something online because I was very aware it was all very London-centric and I was still attracting, you know, the kind of usually on average majority white 
middle middle class disposable income women who lived in and around London. And it took me three years to build the online version because it was always on the sides. Then I had a baby, then there was a pandemic, very painful. And also I think I had a bit of fear around, you know, online somehow feels more permanent. It's also much more complicated Mm. to build than just hiring a space and rocking up and giving everybody a brilliant experience. And it just so happened that that, the launch of that coincided with COVID-19. So we launched the first version of the online course in August and the fourth bond, as you know, as we talked about, will launch in June. And when the first bond happened, we had over 300 women sign up. It was an incredible experience. Impact was phenomenal. But I had at least 50 of them that were like, this cannot be over. Like, I can't allow this to be over, like after the six weeks. And that was why I decided to build a community space because the community asked for it. You know, it was never in my plan to have a membership space, but but the, the need and the demand was there. And now that I've started building that, I'm realizing there's lots and lots of opportunity around there. And ultimately, I do think there is an opportunity to build a product to increase our impact even further. I don't know what that is yet, but my hunch is that that will be the kind of next phase. Once we get the bonds really optimised and running super well and potentially these many bonds around areas such as neurodivergence and potentially another one for BIPOC women, potentially another one for women who are living with long-term conditions. You know, there's a whole whole bunch of things I want to do there. But I think a product is somewhere on the horizon. Got it. That's exciting. Uh, I would definitely keep watching that. Uh, one yeah. last brief question is, if you think about 10 years' time from now, mm-hmm. uh, how does the world look like if uh, you succeed with your mission at Upfront? How will the world change? So when Upfront succeeds, it will be a household name term that everybody understands in a way that you'll say, you need to get more Upfront. Sounds like you need to learn how to be Upfront. This is an Upfront moment. Uh, What I can like uh, compare that to is what Brenny Brown's work has done for vulnerability. I think Brenny Brown has done a really transformational job of taking vulnerability from something that was academic, misunderstood, made us feel a bit awkward, to something that, you know, there's a whole population of teams and leaders and organisations all over the world who are like, we are in this, we are are here to learn how to be vulnerable, to talk about vulnerability. And I want to do a version of that for confidence because confidence is equally misunderstood and equally powerful when you reframe it. So yeah, that's that's what it'll look like in 10 years. Wow, amazing. Thank you very much, Lauren, for joining me. Uh, It was really inspiring to hear your journey and your mission with Upfront. And uh, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. Thanks. All right, I'm just stopping the recording. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share the episode, leave us a review, 
and consider becoming a supporter on buymeacoffee.com slash impacthustlers. This means a lot to me. Thank you very much for tuning in and see you next time. Bye.